Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this episode of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. On today's episode, we'll talk about how Walmart and others are using IBM's blockchain to attempt to pinpoint food safety issues. We'll also discuss how mushroom sales increasing has caused a little bit of a problem in the produce industry as they can't keep up with increased demand and Zoe's Kitchen reports their second quarter earnings. But we lead today's show with B&G Foods. They enter into a definitive agreement to buy Back to Nature Foods for $162.5 million. Now, currently, Back to Nature Foods is owned by a consortium including Brynwood Partners and Mondelez International, as well as a few other entities. This deal is slated to close soon. In fact, sometime in the third quarter of this year. And Robert Cantwell, the president and CEO of B&G Foods, said that they are very pleased to add back to nature to their brand portfolio that includes Green Giant and Victoria as well after their recent other acquisitions. To delve into this agreement and look a little bit deeper, we look at Back to Nature Foods as they become a more prominent brand. And you've seen a lot more big box stores, a lot of retail outlets, more and more here recently. And I think that has to do with why B&G Foods has found them as a potentially profitable and sustainable source for income in the future. I've actually purchased here recently a Back to Nature banner food. It was a Fig Newton equivalent, and it was at a local Costco. So I talk about big box right there. You can see that they've actually had some successful contracts with the big guys. They sell a variety of snacks, too, there. And what they have seen success with in big box retailers is granola, crackers, and cereals, especially in Sam's Club. They actually looks like they've had a contract with the granola there. You'll see it down the cereal aisle. But... Almost all of their products claim to be non-GMO, over 70 products according to their website, and some are also gluten-free, but only five, again, according to their website, are USDA certified organic. Of these organic offerings, none are gluten-free. So I think that's a potential problem area, something that B&G Foods will probably look to exploit and look to really leverage their brand and try to get some more offerings in there that are also gluten-free as well as non-GMO and certified organic. A lot of people, especially now, with a transparency wave are looking at all three for their purchasing decisions. You see a lot of companies like Back to Nature Foods try to take advantage of those product labels that everybody is really keen on. The company most recently was owned and still is partly by Mondelez Foods. A lot of brands our listeners may be familiar with. In addition to Oreo, they, they hold Chips Ahoy, Honeymade, Fig Newtons, but Mondelez, strategic move. They were kind of not really willing to do much with Back to Nature Foods a few years ago. It's actually going to be a little bit unclear what the partners are going to be doing with the $162.5 million that's going to be spread out through not only Mondelez, but also the other shareholders. And honestly, if you're a shareholder of Mondelez, because they are a very massive publicly traded company, market cap around $70 billion, you have to wonder what their strategy is here because they're selling off part of their portfolio that is a bit more progressive, Trent. They're looking towards the natural foods, trying to get into that niche, yet they're selling off a part that has really gained a lot of momentum, has secured a lot of these important contracts. Obviously, the contracts are probably what makes up 
the bulk of that purchase price. So you're wondering exactly what they're doing because their staple brands still have a lot of poor ingredients, a lot of ingredients that a lot of customers are trying to avoid now. And especially if you look at some of their foods such as wheat thins, you're seeing that Back to Nature Foods actually now has several crackers that compete directly with wheat thins. So you're kind of wondering the conflicts there directly with Back to Nature Foods. Potentially they wanted to hold on to their staple brands and didn't want to decrease the momentum there or the market share. But certainly if you look at B&G Foods, they are intent on trying to fund and distribute more and more natural and organic offerings for their customer base. And you might ask how they'll be funding this acquisition. Well, they'll be doing so through revolving loans, additional revolving loans under its existing credit facility. They'll also be funding related fees and expenses to this acquisition through those revolving loans as well. So they're not funding through assets and they're not funding through free cash, which are the other two ways that we commonly see acquisitions funded through. BNG Foods expects this acquisition to be immediately accretive to its earnings per share and free cash flow going forward. So if you're a shareholder, it's probably a positive thing. Also projects that following the completion of a six-month integration period, the acquired business will generate on an annualized basis net sales of approximately $80 million. Now, granted, there will be some charges involved with trying to tap into those synergies as we always see when one company acquires another. B&G, for their part, they have a huge portfolio of brands primarily centered around natural and organic offerings. And they'll be trying to use these acquired brands as leverage in negotiations with grocers in the U.S. And that's actually something that Cantwell, again, the CEO of B&G Foods, said about this acquisition is that he hopes and the company hopes that by acquiring this particular brand, by acquiring the Back to Nature brand, he said, hopefully we'll have a bigger place at the table to talk to Whole Foods and Sprouts. So the idea here is that maybe this will give his brand a little bit more leverage to get shelf space in some of the popular grocers, even though Whole Foods same-store sales have been shrinking a little bit. Sprouts same-store sales have been boosting, and that store chain has gotten more popular over the last five years. So Cantwell is hoping to not only leverage this newfound brand into getting his current products on the store shelves, but also in trying to get the Back to Nature foods in these stores as well throughout the country. As Leighton mentioned, Mondelez International has a lot of foods that aren't necessarily considered whole foods fodder. With this, B&G Foods is also getting the low-fat snack brand Snack Wells, which was previously introduced under Nabisco, in 1992, it's got those familiar green containers. It would be interesting to gauge the brand awareness between Back to Nature and Snackwells. Despite aggressive marketing efforts in the 1990s by Snackwells, that brand has kind of gone by the wayside, and they only really sell a couple of different products that would probably be recognized wholesale by today's consumers, in part because they haven't done the massive advertising spends that they did back in the 90s, but still, Snackwells part of this deal. And we'll look on to see what B&G Foods has in store for the two brands heading forward. We transitioned to our only QSR in Zoe's Kitchen as they reported their second quarter earnings at the end of last week. Shares fell after the initial earnings report last Thursday and after hours trading by around 4%. Zoe's Kitchen is a fast casual restaurant chain specializing in Mediterranean cuisine and they're fast growing and 
you look and see the statements from Kevin Miles over about three years ago, and he's quick to tell everybody about their cuisine. In fact, he's saying that it's not just going to be Italian cuisine. He says that a lot of their inspiration comes from the 21 countries in that particular region. They have over 230 restaurants now, so you can see they've actually grown quite a bit since about 2014 when they had just 103 units. So you've seen that they've actually propelled beyond what they were thinking they would get. They are thinking three to four years they would double their unit count, but it looks as though they've done that in about two to three. Again, Kevin Miles, their president and CEO, said the second quarter was a challenging one as revenues came in pretty high but missed marks versus analyst expectations and same-store sales also lagged. Top-line revenue came in for the company $74.3 million, lagged the consensus mark from analysts at $75 million. However, if you look on a year-over-year basis, the revenue increased 12.1%. This obviously is due to those new restaurant openings that has seen them enter into a lot of new territory. Additionally, during the quarter, they opened 13 new company-owned restaurants. So again, how this company works, they don't franchise out. They have primarily a company-owned base, and this is what's caused the company to perform fairly well in terms of margins and labor costs, and we'll get into those figures in a little bit. Comparable restaurant sales declined 3.8% for Zoe's Kitchen, a 5% decrease in transactions and product mix, partially offset by a 1.2% price hike for the menu. Same restaurant growth last year for the same quarter was 4%, so they were arguably coming up against fairly tough comps. Restaurant contribution margin went down 260 basis points year over year to 19% of revenue with increased labor costs and operating expenses eroding the improvement in cost of goods. This points to the continuation in lax food inputs. Inflation has ticked up slightly for some. We mentioned Walmart on the retail focus, mentioning food inflation has gone up low single digits, but others have reported neutral pricing. A lot of the news for the management side of things has to do with menu innovation and what they're trying to do as far as guest experience is concerned. And the biggest way in which they're attempting to improve the guest experience is through their newer menu, which was rolled out in June. They're kind of tagging it with this better Mediterranean positioning. They want to bring forward some of these new menu items to customers, but the key for Zoe's is to not only reposition themselves within the Mediterranean space, since there's not a ton of competitors there, but reposition themselves inside the healthy food space as well. And they're doing this in part through some of their bowl rollouts. They have essentially bowl meals, but there are different options now for the base, including cauliflower rice, which again is an ingredient that's picked up in terms of popularity, ancient grain or salad mix there as well. And they've got different proteins that they offer, among them lamb kofta, which is certainly unique among the rest of the fast casual industry. They're also wanting to roll out a new iOS and Android app before the end of the third quarter. The website and the upcoming release of the app that is development on their website They represent major investments in customer-facing technology, which Zoe's feels like is crucial to boosting those same-store sales that had been lagging during this last quarter. Currently, digital sales account for only 7% of sales, which is in line with certain fast-casual restaurants, but behind several others. 
the likes of, let's say, a Starbucks will see a greater percentage of sales with digital sales. And Zoe's wants to tap into that market, if at all possible. They're also expanding delivery. And certainly this is something that a lot of different restaurants across the board are looking at. At the end of the first quarter, they had 100 of their 230 locations on board with delivery. They're working with third-party vendors here, vendors that offer specific food delivery services. But I think the most promising aspect of Zoe's is their catering business. We've noted from other companies that are scuffling and or struggling that catering has been a crucial key to turning things around. And even a business that's had success like Olive Garden owned by Darden Brands is seeing success in the catering line as well. And those things are boosting top line revenue. In this circumstance, especially given that the company owns these restaurants, these aren't franchised restaurants, catering is going to be crucial to not only boost that top line revenue, but it can be a major driver of margins as well, simply because you're doing so much at one point in time. If you can manage it, and they right now have 60 restaurants catering, it can really boost and streamline your revenue sources. Now, you don't want to be exclusive to catering, and certainly you don't want your catering business to slow the throughput in-house. But when I look at what Zoe's is doing, I think of another DFW area fast casual that features some unique cuisine in Masala Walk. Masala Walk, another one of those businesses that gets a lot of their money from catering in the fast casual space. And I liken what they've done to what Zoe's is trying to do, rolling out so many of their restaurants with catering. Now, as for the rest of the year, Leighton mentioned tepid growth at the start of the story. But really, it's tepid growth in comparison to the growth that we've seen so far from Zoe's. They still want to open in the neighborhood of 38 to 40 restaurants this calendar year. They want to slow it back to 25 to 30 restaurants in 2018. This is smaller than some onlookers expected, but Zoe's, rightly so, is looking to be focused on more brand awareness and boosting current store traffic trends. And I think Zoe's is looking at some other fast casuals that either expanded too quickly or ignored warning signs and shrinking same-store sales didn't address those, and then ended up opening a bunch of unprofitable stores. Kevin Miles and company seem to be out in front of this, making sure that they're not opening stores too fast and kind of refocusing on their existing restaurants, making sure that they are not only profitable, but that they're driving ticket size northward in a way that doesn't involve just hiking prices. For fiscal 2017, the company expects total revenue in the band of 314 to $322 million, same as the previously guided range so despite the slight miss here they still expect to make their goals for the year as a whole shares are back up to the pre-earnings levels as of tuesday of this week now around 13 dollars 20 per share carrying a 215 million market cap and it's interesting that about a year and a half ago zoe's was trading around 32 dollars per share Leighton had actually had a small position in the company at that point but shares have really plummeted as growth prospects are beginning to become more mild overall for zoe's and when you compare them to other fast casual restaurants that have supposedly had this enormous runway for growth i honestly think a lot about shake shack where shake shack their stock price was kind of inflated based on the amount they have yet to grow and how fast they are growing. And we're likely to see the same deflation take place from Shake Shack in the next year or two. But as for Zoe's, I think they're doing the right thing going forward, focusing on the stores that they have open, 
still opening a few stores here and there, but making sure they're functional in the markets. They've already got the brick and mortar locations. Kevin Miles and his team are certainly looking at the basics here, going back to what has made them successful, what has made them really bullish in this fast casual industry. And you see about statements in December 2014, Kevin Miles said, the better for you is going to be the future. And you see Panera and Chipotle really jumping on that bandwagon since taking up a lot of market share. But when I talk about going back to basics, they're, they're talking about the ingredients, everything as far as the food and the menu innovation. And I think that really is the key differentiator because there's not a lot of fast casuals out there that serve solely Mediterranean cuisine. They said they're going to be listening to their customers a little bit more. They're going to be doing logical things in the back end of the operations, such as phasing out less productive items, items that aren't moving in a particular region. They're going to be looking at phasing those out, introducing maybe potentially some limited time offerings in the future. And they're looking at taking better care of their employees. They had actually remarked saying that they've had a good response from a 2% wage increase. I talked a little bit about the cost of goods earlier. You see cost of goods as a percentage of revenue actually decreased for them, which means they really have a firm grasp on their operational expenses. Overall, general administrative expenses as a percent of revenue did decrease by a certain amount of basis points. This despite having what I just said a little bit earlier about contribution margin going down 260 basis points year over year to 19% of revenue. And you're talking about a lot of food inputs too. I so far talked about menu innovation, but a lot of the food that they're bringing in is actually a little bit less. They actually cited beef ticking down a little bit. And this is actually contrary to what we've seen in other QSRs. And I think this does tie into the fact that the management team is going in a slowly but surely type of fashion. Their tepid growth for 2018 comes in a way that they are trying to focus on their core customer. They don't want to see those same store sales losses, or at least they want to identify exactly how to get those traffic numbers back up, and they're doing it in a multitude of ways. To retailers and small business owners out there, if you've ever wanted to decrease your shopping cart abandonment rate for an e-commerce site or even increase your potential shopper audience for your brick and mortar locations, you can do so through offering purchase financing options to your shoppers. And that's what big box retailers like Macy's, Home Depot, and Crate and Barrel do. But honestly, these merchants spend millions of dollars a year to offer and manage purchase financing solutions and give them to their shoppers. That's not practical for most small businesses or growing retailers. Well, now you can offer your shoppers the same purchase financing options as the big guys without all the hassle, headache, or compliance. Gain Loans provides merchants of all sizes across many different industries the same big box financing tools without all of the cost or the complexity. Simply download or install the Gain Loans widget on your website or post a sign in front of your store and you and your customers will start benefiting immediately from their increased purchasing power. It's a great deal for retailers, especially small retailers. And when it works well, you won't even know your customers are using it. Again, no commission taken out on behalf of Gain Loans. For more information or to be part of their pilot program as a retailer, including some in-store signage, contact info, I-N-F-O, at GainLoans.com, G-A-N-E, Loans.com. That's info at GainLoans.com. 
Moving on to the technology realm now as food suppliers Kroger and Walmart have announced a joint partnership that would allow for increased transparency in food distribution throughout the U.S., but not only the transparency aspect of it, it would allow these retailers to pinpoint sources of potentially contaminated food. The program would center around IBM's blockchain platform, a technology providing a digital record of transactions in blocks, so to speak, that cannot be altered. This is more accurate and precise than looking at bulk batch numbers, which is the major difference here. Long term, this could also stem losses for retailers and for providers as companies get a firm grip on the root cause of a potential foodborne illness outbreak instead of throwing away an entire line of, say, celery. If a stalk of celery causes some sort of foodborne illness, they can track more easily exactly how much product to discard and exactly which product to discard. So it gives retailers the ability to pinpoint these type of things by vertically integrating the blockchain platform throughout suppliers, farmers, and also packaging companies. Walmart's VP of Food Safety, Frank Giannis, alludes in a video on Walmart's website and also on IBM's website to the time factor as a sort of product savings, where before an investigation could take days or weeks as opposed to minutes. Giannis also mentions that many farmers, many packers, actually keep information on paper the old-fashioned way or in products that really don't speak with one another. They're not compatible across different platforms. So that's a big issue there for Walmart. As far as Kroger's concerned, Howard Popola, who is Kroger's VP of Corporate Food Technology and Regulatory Compliance, mentioned that safety, of course, a key value for Kroger and that their partnership with IBM enables them to explore different ways to keep customers safe and be able to vet out any products that may be contaminated before they get to the public. So there's a lot of things going on here, Leighton. This is a complex program, and it all starts with the electronic data. Yeah, the electronic data is really one of the things that a lot of companies are looking towards now, especially in the age of hacking. A lot of people getting into sensitive data. You want to make sure that everything is streamlined. And so if we try to dumb it down here, you and I had to do a little bit of research, a little bit of blockchain 101, if you will. This has actually been around for quite some time, this technology trying to simplify transactions across the globe. And IBM has a very fundamental video that allows a lot of people and future users to kind of look inside the basics of the technology and get a conceptual idea of how it's going to support different industries. They actually use a idea of a diamond industry where you're usually exporting a diamond from, let's say, South Africa. You take a diamond through several regulatory agencies and it lands through several distributors in the United States and then to a retail store and then to the end customer. Well, you have to understand that's a lot of transactions that that one particular diamond has to go through from the mining to the end goal of getting it to a customer here in the United States or wherever it may be. It involves a lot of paperwork, a lot of different enterprise software, and this blockchain allows for users in the distribution process to track exactly where that diamond is coming from and at what time it hits certain points. And so I think if you were to try to relate this to the food safety industry here in the United States, it's much easier to understand if there's a problem, a food safety issue, some sort of cross-contamination across several distributors, you're able to look back and see the root cause analysis 
stem that and then stop the production or at least have that recall affect only those items attached to that food safety issue in particular. A lot of the times we have a big news story that we talk about on the Food Focus that pertains to several food safety issues that usually the ones that get mass media attention here in the United States or in Canada. Every time that happens, an FDA recall or a USDA recall has a batch number associated with a particular vegetable or fruit or what have you that is affected. And you see those batch numbers can actually correlate to all of the produce related to that one recall, when in reality, it could be a cross-contamination effect, and therefore, maybe only 30% of that batch is truly affected. What this would do is save retailers money, would save distributors money, and in the end, Trent, we talked about this before recording, it saves the customer money. So it saves everybody money, and it not only does that, but it ensures higher quality safety for the end consumer there. And you're saying that the end consumer is going to be able to win out here because less people are going to be sick. Supermarket News pointed out that 1 in 10 people fall ill and 400,000 die due to contaminated food on an annualized basis. So if you can even bring that to maybe 1 in 20, 1 in 30, that's a massive cost savings. And if you relate that to an industry that we never talk about, the healthcare industry, you can imagine the savings there. A lot of people in the insurance pool will be happy to see their premiums at least stay stagnant for a year because of a lot less people falling ill due to contaminated food that could have been solved through this blockchain analysis. So I think this is a win-win for a lot of companies. And it's not going to just be the major retailers that you mentioned, Trent, the Kroger and the Walmarts of the world, but also those food distributors are on board. And that is what's extremely important here is that network externality. If everyone is on board, you can go through the transactions and everything and to be able to see it through one mechanism, one platform is going to be extremely transparent. And that's exactly what they're saying here. IBM is saying that trust is going to be the key factor for all of these programs, whether it's a point of sale system as it relates to supply chain or just blockchain as it relates to maybe smaller food issues. It's all going to be within this one system and everybody who has a key to it can see the goings on. And not only is it going to be Drizdol's, Dole, Golden State Foods, but also these large spice companies, McCormick, McLean, Nestle, Tyson Foods, and Unilever said they are all on board for this transparency and this new wave in the digital world. Now, we should keep in mind that this is still kind of in beta testing and going through the beta testing protocol. But Leighton, you hit on something very important, and that's the externality of the program. The success long-term of this blockchain initiative in terms of food safety, but also in terms of retailers making sure they've dotted their I's and crossed their T's when it comes to food contamination. It's going to be important to get as many firms on board as possible from the farmers to the packers to the distributors. So everyone has to be on board. It has to be vertically integrated for it to truly work as it's intended. And this is where you might run into a problem here because we shouldn't forget that IBM is a for-profit business. They're going to be trying to sell this product to companies and trying to integrate them into this much larger system. And in this circumstance, I think it's a valid question. Who will truly be IBM's customer here? That is, who is going to be paying IBM? Is this something that retailers will be willing to pony up for the technology for the packers, let's say, to use, or even the distributors to use? 
as a company that's barely making any money in the first place in the produce industry, a food packer is probably not going to be willing to spend a lot of money or a lot of capital on technology upgrades, so it may fall to the retailers. Long term, we'll have to watch how the cost of this product affects retailers and that type of thing. But again, it certainly is a win for customers, not only because of transparency, not only because customers ideally would be able to see kind of their movement and the machinations of their food before they buy it, but also more importantly, they can feel more secure in the food system without having to worry necessarily about so many of the foodborne illnesses. Well, we talked a little bit about produce in our last story. Now we go full in with the USDA reporting mushroom production values reaching an all-time high last year with consumers increasingly seeking meat substitutes. This comes via the U.S. Department of Agriculture National Agriculture Statistics Service who released this report on Monday. The report findings see the value of overall mushroom crops in 2016 coming in at a whopping $1.22 billion. It appears as though the value boost has been provided by demand and an increase in specialty mushroom production. Despite production declining 2%, the overall value of crop production is increasing. So you can see the contrast there. Production is a little bit less than it was last year, coming in at 929 million pounds of mushrooms. That's a lot of mushrooms for anyone who's a mushroom fan out there. And at the time when produce has been discounted to the extremes, a recent article by Produce News suggests that many California farmers are having to sell some crops at an even price with the cost of packaging, meaning that there is no take-home revenue for farmers. And you see volume of non-white mushrooms were generally up in 2016. Brown mushrooms, portobello, cremini mostly made up 18% of mushroom volume, but 23% of mushroom value, meaning they typically have a higher price point than traditional white mushrooms. Production for brown mushrooms was up just 1% in 2016 versus 2015. Specialty mushrooms, including shiitake, oyster, among others, brought in $96.2 million versus around $92.5 million last year. This after a 4% spike in production. The industry also saw an increase in demand and production of organic varieties. This is consistent with the trends that we've been seeing. A lot of people in the produce arena really drifting towards the organic varieties. And we see this is consistent with a lot of other produce that one may shop for. Organic mushroom volume was up a whopping 20% year over year. These typically command a higher price point as well, as you can imagine, because the farmers have to go through these specialty hoops to be able to get that organic certification. Organic mushrooms make up 8% of the total mushroom sales. And Trent, there is an issue, possible issue, leading to production declines. And apparently a report by the American Mushroom Institute is finding some interesting facts that have been going on in the industry. You hit on the fact that the brown mushrooms, the specialty mushrooms, the organic mushrooms typically carry with them a larger price point, And we saw production increase for those mushrooms in 2016, and they've increased to this point in 2017. The problem is that prototypical white button mushroom, the same you might get on a pizza from Domino's or you might see in the grocery store, that white button mushroom doesn't sell at as high of a price point. Therefore, farmers have to pay their labor less. And this labor is where the American Mushroom Institute is finding problems here in the supply chain. 
Now, we've harped on this before, but as wages continue to rise, unemployment shrinks, some of these lower paid positions may face retention issues. And let's face it, mushroom farming in particular is not exactly the most glamorous job. You spend a lot of your day in either dark places or places that don't smell all that great. So if you're a worker in that position, you're earning minimum wage and something else comes along paying substantially more, you're probably going to move along to that position. This is not just an issue with mushroom farms, but it's an issue with produce in general, as there are a number of farmers that have had to leave fields unpicked, basically, because they can't find enough labor to come through and pick their crops. Daniel Ron of the American Mushroom Institute was quoted recently by the Produce News as saying that rising wages and labor scarcity have hampered production, particularly for those white button mushrooms that we talked about. And this is true across the supply chain. Not only for the farm are they having issues trying to find workers, but for packers as well. So it's every step of the way are they having issues finding staffing. And he warns of potential price increases because of this. So a combination of a continued shortage of labor, meaning a shortage of product, and then price increases could hamstring a lot of QSRs and FSRs and fast casual restaurants that rely heavily on mushrooms. You think, first of all, certainly of pizza providers, but also chains that offer alternative forms of meat or protein like mushrooms, for example. And it could also make mushrooms less desirable as substitute goods for meats. In this case, the mushroom industry will have to look towards those brown mushrooms, towards those specialty mushrooms where you charge a little bit more, but you're also paying staff a little bit more for those crops in order to keep their position on American plates. And that's a position on American plates that they have fought for over the last five years. And that's part of the reason why we have this issue with supply not being able to ratchet up to meet demand. Because mushroom farms aren't as reliant on positive weather as your traditional crops in terms of getting enough rain, not getting too much rain, getting enough sun, or not getting too much sun, the crops aren't as volatile in that way. However, crops do rely on a ready supply of manure. This is also something to keep an eye out for. Now, in theory, this should be fine since beef production has increased over the last four years in the U.S., according to USDA data. However, one other trend is that farmers are switching increasingly to organic methods for the raising of cattle, and this could eventually be passed along to the farms because the price to raise organic cattle is usually a little bit more than the price to raise conventional cattle. You're going to see a higher price as well charged for the manure. By the way, Leighton mentioned organic mushroom volume going up 20% year over year. There are actually fewer than 100 certified organic mushroom farms in the United States. So I mentioned earlier that mushrooms are in demand. Mushrooms have managed a share of the American plate on the dinner table. And one of the reasons they've done this is because of a continued shift away from meat by some consumers. This is more of a macroeconomic effect Mushrooms are seen as a substitute for meat in most recipes, including portobello's, the mushroom that we mentioned in the brown mushroom category. And so those seeking to avoid meat or cut down on meat consumption for one reason or another, maybe a meatless Monday exercise will increasingly turn to mushrooms to thicken up and give that umami to the dish. 
Awareness of the Meatless Monday initiative, by the way, that's skyrocketed in recent years such that over half of the population is aware of that initiative. Flexitarianism, also an increasingly popular trend, something mentioned by Whole Foods over the last couple of years, and mushrooms have been a beneficiary of that. Total mushroom sales were up 3.4% in the most recent quarter year over year, which outpaces most produce. Produce as a whole up 2.3% in sales. When we look at July alone, mushroom sales were up 4.5% compared to just 0.7% to the rest of produce. As produce sales have gone up in volume, but with promotional pricing being so heavy this year with a great crop year for most of the country, it's not likely that comps will be too substantial for most products elsewhere on the produce aisle. Mushroom marketers, meanwhile, while this whole push towards flexitarianism and meatless Mondays has been going on, they've done an excellent job with marketing of late, and so credit them, but it's also ratcheted up demand, which supply has been unable to sustain. Something called the blend has also been credited with improving demand, which is kind of a cooperative effort with the mushroom marketing board of the larger mushroom council as it's called and the blend has become very popular we may eventually see it in a qsr this fall late popularized indeed through well-placed media buys and through chef trends the blend involves blending chopped mushrooms with meat to sub out for some meat in a recipe and this is done for a multitude of reasons namely cost sometimes but mostly flavor nutritional value among other things the Mushroom Council, who's behind most of the marketing efforts for the blend, has credited the initiative for not only increased retail sales of the mushroom, but also for increased institutional sales. You see a lot of schools and big restaurants begin to use the technique as well. Sonic will actually release a burger that incorporates the blend this fall, further compounding this demand. And this is something you see throughout a lot of restaurants. Red Robin even had a little bit of a promotion about this time last year trying to spur up mushroom demand and if sonic does well and that's a big if we could see other qslers follow suit but certainly some fast casuals will take notice if it becomes a popular trend there at sonic and sonic always trying to find a different way to incorporate things with limited time offerings trying to reduce price the same thing all the other qsrs are doing and what's interesting trent is the take here with the mushroom, you really have seen it become a more prevalent part of this society. Either it's an FSR or QSR, a lot of people are trying to hype burgers, trying to use it as those meat substitutes, like you had mentioned with the blend. And I think oftentimes a lot of people tend to forget that these type of trends do have underlying factors. And I do believe there are a lot here to be looked at, cost namely, and flavor and nutritional value everyone trying to get in on those produce sales i actually talked to a manager recently of a local supermarket and he said his mushroom sales have tripled over the past four years so definitely noticeable gains in the industry as a whole well we've reached the final segment of the food focus podcast where each late and i tell you about an item that we try and that's new to the world of food or at least new to us surrounding the world of food and we'll begin with late well, after going through and trying to write some of these stories last night, I ended up getting fairly hungry for Oreos. However, I did want to shy away from the ones Mondelez sells and produces. So I went to Newman O's at my natural grocers and got a 13-ounce pack of Newman O's, which taste almost identical to Oreos. I say almost because they do taste a little bit more flowery. You can see that most of their ingredients are organic, and if you look 
at the nutrition facts, they're actually quite similar to conventional Oreos. So if you're trying to shy away from conventional Oreos because of their calories and fat content, you may as well get the normal thing. But overall, you see nutritional facts with two cookies, an astounding 130 calories, 50 calories from fat. Total fat is six grams. But I'll tell you, Trent, I ate about half a pack as I normally do with these types of things. I was hungry. I couldn't help it. I was talking about Mondelez in my brain. And so therefore, I ended up having a snack that I ended up feeling fairly guilty with. However, again, if you look at the ingredients, not the nutrition facts, the ingredients, that's where they differ. And that's why I do support a lot of what they do there at Newman's Own. And obviously, I'm a big fan of those fig Newmans they have as well. So the product I tried is not necessarily new to the world of food, but it is new to me in part because it comes from overseas. And it is actually available on Amazon for $13.50 per package. And I've actually heard that this is more expensive than what it is to get it in its country of origin, which is China. I had a couple of students bring back foods from China from their summer vacation and their summer trip. One student in particular, Jackie, he's actually from Anqing, China. He brought back some spicy gluten, and I was very, I don't know what to say. I was very critical of the idea of a product called spicy gluten. After all, we talk all the time about the increased movement towards foods without gluten in them. But this is Long Latiao. I'm sure I'm butchering that. Spicy gluten. And basically what we have here are sticks and the texture. I don't know how to describe it. If you've ever had an edible packing peanut basically that's what it would taste like it was basically like blown up cornstarch only in this case it was gluten and the flavor was unlike anything i've ever had it wasn't too spicy but it was incredibly savory we talk about umami quite a bit in this segment it had that umami but it was pretty greasy unfortunately i couldn't read any of the nutrition facts because they're in a language that i'm completely unfamiliar with one of the other foods that was brought back, this was actually brought back from Japan, is called Pocky, which is a little bit more popular in the U.S. Couldn't have any of the Pocky because I am allergic to chocolate, but it, it looked pretty tasty. However, if you get a chance to try spicy gluten, maybe not at an inflated price point, but if you get a chance to try it, if you're ever in China, if you're ever in an Asian country, certainly do check it out. I think it's a flavor worth exploring. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent. Coming up this week on Retail Focus, we'll have an interview with Sydney and Selmy, a small business advisor, talking about how small businesses can use Amazon to great effect and also jump into the e-commerce fray alongside the Giants as we continue our e-commerce interview series ahead of shop.org. That e-commerce interview series is brought to you by Gain Loans. We'll also talk about Michael's latest quarterly earnings report, an industry we don't talk a whole lot about in terms of arts and crafts retail. We'll be back with Retail Focus again on Friday. Check us out on Twitter in the interim at Retail Podcast. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.